0: Welcome to Rereads, to Rereads. As I try to gather thoughts, write and record this episode of Rereads, I'm keenly aware that this is a very different cultural space than when I first read these books. The coronavirus pandemic has spread and taken the lives of over 125,000 people in the United States. The wanton killing of George Floyd has brought hundreds of thousands of people to the streets to demand justice and a better way forward as a country. Distrust and cynicism has confronted the ineptitude and indifference of public officials. Churches are shuttered, but the streets are full of people who are angry, saddened, traumatized, and march together in their collective grief. In a previous episode of Rereads, Episode 4, I considered Kathleen Norris's book, Ascidia, Monks, Marriage, and a Writer's Life. The condition of Ascidia is a spiritual despair and apathy that is fueled by a sense of absurdity, of meaninglessness, even to the degree of resenting spiritual practice and expression. It falls into a cluster of afflictions like cynicism, despair, disdain, boredom, and the overindulgence of pleasurable pursuits to distract us from what is not right in us and not right in the world. Norris suggests that ascidia is a particular affliction of monastics and writers. So I thought it would be an interesting reread to engage in an author who represented a particular time in history and one who sought to give expression to his generation's experience of collective grief and trauma. Ernest Hemingway bookended his literary career with two works describing the same period of his life. The novel, The Sun Also Rises, was published in 1927, when Hemingway was in his 20s. The memoir, known as A Moveable Feast, was taken from his reflections during the same period of time concerning his life as a struggling writer in Paris. However, those recaptured notes and subsequent book were not published until shortly after his death in 1961. Together, these two books create a bifocal view of the thoughts and actions of a particular subset of a generation born around the turn of the century. In these two books of Ernest Hemingway's, the reader is presented with characters, including F. Scott Fitzgerald and even Hemingway himself, who have been described as the lost generation. Attributed to Gertrude Stein... The Lost Generation describes a group of expatriate artists and writers living in Paris during the 1920s. They were a soul-weary lot, some of whom had witnessed the atrocities of World War I and had seen the effects of the Spanish flu pandemic and the economic recession of post-war Europe. I have read Hemingway before and enjoyed his robust first-hand knowledge style of writing. In rereading these books, I see something else. Lost people trying to find some sense of meaning, or even just life itself, in a disappointing and lifeless existence. Their lives form a strange tension in creating beautiful things that give voice to the pain of their life, while at the same time seeking to numb the pain of their own lives. In my first read of these books, the towering figure of Hemingway stood behind them. The soldier, the writer, the hunter and outdoorsman, living in exotic locations, being his own man and not giving a damn what others thought. Certainly a romanticized version. What some would call the Hemingway myth. My wife calls it a man crush. In my rereading of these books... I started from the beginning, the epigraph, and allowed these words to orient my reading. The starting reference point of Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, is a quote from Gertrude Stein, "'You are all a lost generation.'" The second reference point is a passage from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. "'One generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever,' The sun also rises, and the sun goes down to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south and turns about to the north. It whirls about continually, and the wind returns again according to his circuits. All rivers run into the sea. If the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. This is a fascinating selection from Ecclesiastes by virtue of omission. What is missing are the lines immediately prior and immediately following the above quote. Ecclesiastes begins with, Vanities of vanities, all is vanity. The very next line following Hemingway's quotation of Ecclesiastes is this, All things are wearisome. These are summary statements of the passage Hemingway cites. In fact, they are summary statements of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And, if I may continue the thought, they are fitting summaries of these two particular books of Hemingway. I would suggest that All Things Are Wearisome may have been a more appropriate title for The Sun Also Rises. But truly, who would ever want to read a book entitled as such? So why the omission? Hemingway himself gives us a clue in A Moveable Feast, when he reflects upon a short story he wrote, in particular, when he left out a concluding action by the story's character. It is a writing technique which some could describe as the theory of omission. Hemingway writes, This was omitted on my new theory that you could omit anything if you knew that the omitted part would strengthen the story and make people feel something more than they understood. In other words, Hemingway intentionally held back in his prose, giving the reader just enough facts while not over explaining or overriding the reader's imagination. It is a theory that seems to posit right simply, and the reader will fill in the missing pieces. I find it fascinating to consider not what Hemingway used of Ecclesiastes, but what, I believe, he intentionally left out. All is vanities. All things are wearisome. Was Hemingway leading the reader to these omitted lines? Perhaps. Perhaps not. But it is the place where this reader landed upon. I believe that this was a crucial oversight in my first reading as I now try to understand Hemingway's life and writings in the 1920s through the lens of Ecclesiastes, the lens he himself has offered Who was this lost generation, and how was their, quote, lostness manifested? To read these books is to discover a lost generation who found all things wearisome, and who themselves were bored, broken, and yes, wearisome. I think that if the author of Ecclesiastes and Hemingway were sitting in a Parisian cafe in the 1920s, their conversation might go something like this. "'In much wisdom is much vexation, "'and those who increase knowledge increase sorrow.' "'Indeed, my friend.' "'You know, I said to myself, "'Come now, make a test of pleasure. "'I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine. "'Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, "'and I kept my heart from no pleasure.' "'It sounds like a great calling.' "'No.' For I discovered that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the skilful, But time and chance happen to them all, for they all die in the end. I thought about this, so I hated life, because what is done under the sun, the same sun that also rises again to what seems to be the same day, is all grievous to me. Wait, let me write this down. The sun also rises. I began to despise my work, for it brought me no joy. My accomplishments made me anxious. They would soon be forgotten, or another would take credit for them. So I gave my heart up to despair. What's it like being a writer? There is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. But when you don't or can't write, you feel the death loneliness that comes at the end of the day, of of every day that is wasted in your life. So then I, too, give up my heart to despair. I'll finish your coffee. In his first novel, The Sun Also Rises, the main character of Jake is a projection of Hemingway himself. Or at the very least, there was a transfusion of character traits and experiences that Hemingway injected into his fictional character. The story moves the characters from the cafes and bars of Paris to the countryside of Spain, where Jake takes in the legendary trout fishing and the fiesta surrounding the bullfights. While in Spain, one of Jake's travel companions challenges Jake's view of the world. It is strongly suggested that Jake should speak and write with more irony, pointing out all the incongruities and absurdities of life. Jake took a big gulp of coffee. Ah, hell, I said, it's too early in the morning. There you go, and you claim you want to be a writer, too. You're only a newspaper man. You ought to be ironical the minute you get out of bed. You ought to wake up with your mouth full of pity go on, I said. Who did you get this stuff from? Everybody. Don't you read? Don't you ever see anybody? You know what you are? You're an expatriate. Why don't you live in New York? Then you know these things. What do you want me to do, come over here and tell you every year? Take some more coffee, I said. And he drank the coffee. You're an expatriate. You've lost touch with the soil. You get precious, Fake European standards have ruined you. You drink yourself to death. You become obsessed with sex. You spend all your time talking, not working. You're an expatriate, see? You spend all your time in cafes. Sounds like a swell life, I said. When do I work? You don't work. One group claims women support you. Another group claims you're impotent. No, I said. I just had an accident. Hemingway gives the reader the briefest glimpse and description of this group he was a part. You are all a lost generation, said Gertrude Stein, one of the women who supported Hemingway, by the way. Irony, absurdity, apathy, boredom. All things are wearisome. These are the viewpoints of a jaded group of people individuals who have suffered too much loss and have sought the numbing embrace of excess. In the opening chapters of the story, the character of Jake has a conversation with a woman at a restaurant. As a result, the reader learns a little bit more about Jacob Barnes and Hemingway himself, for that matter. We had another bottle of wine, and Georgette made a joke. She smiled and showed all her bad teeth and we touched glasses. "'You're not a bad type,' she said. "'It's a shame you're sick. "'We get on well. "'What's the matter with you, anyway?' "'I got hurt in the war,' I said. "'Oh, that dirty war. "'We would probably have gone on and discussed the war "'and agreed that it was, in reality, "'a calamity for civilization, "'and perhaps would have been better avoided. "'I was bored enough.' "'Hemingway,' first and foremost, wrote about what he knew and experienced. He represents the character of Jake as a damaged World War I vet whose only real passions were riding and watching bullfighting. Himself a World War I veteran, Hemingway gives witness to his thoughts and experiences as he channels them through the character of Jacob Barnes. As Jake was a newspaper man who was seeking to become a writer, Hemingway also was making the same transition in the 1920s. We learn about the other characters of The Sun Also Rises through the observations of Jake. Likewise, Hemingway, the journalist, presents his observations of the assorted literary personalities he comes in contact with during his years in Paris, as represented within the pages of A Movable Feast. Again, we are given a window into these lost and soul-weary individuals through the lenses of these two books. In A Moveable Feast, Hemingway relates his first encounters with Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. When they first meet and begin to spend some time together, Hemingway discovers that Fitzgerald has recently published his second novel. While relatively unknown at the time, The Great Gatsby would go on to win great accolades as one of the great examples of American literature. Yet before he has an opportunity to read Fitzgerald's book, Hemingway discovers that his new friend is a broken and anxious man who has an uneasy relationship with alcohol, not to mention an uneasy relationship with his wife Zelda. The incendiary combination of an unstable Zelda and a vulnerable Scott would give Hemingway pause. In a movable feast, Hemingway makes the following observations of the Fitzgeralds. Zelda was jealous of Scott's work, and as we got to know them, this fell into a regular pattern. Scott would resolve not to go on all-night drinking parties and to get some exercise each day and work regularly. He would start to work, and as soon as he was working well, Zelda would begin complaining about how bored she was and get him off on another drunken party. They would quarrel and then make up, and he would sweat out the alcohol on long walks with me and make up his mind that this time he would really work and would start off well. Then it would start all over again. Scott was very much in love with Zelda, and he was very jealous of her. A lost generation For whom all things were wearisome. Yet, these writers were trying to create something by crafting stories of their experiences. The only question was, were they going to survive their own storytelling? Hemingway flirted with death throughout his life, and one wonders if he was hoping for a spectacular end-of-life experience, rather than facing the fear of growing old and suffering an ignominious end. My rereading of Hemingway, the man, not the myth, has helped me to see an individual who is trying to understand and give expression to the tumultuous world around him. They're not always feel good stories ending in some satisfying resolution, but neither were those Hemingway's experiences. There are loose ends, omissions, uh, and like real life, Places where the reader and observer of this life have to say, I don't know what happens next. I I don't know how he or she end up. As I reflect upon these days and this present generation of young adults, I wonder, what literature will emerge? What art will be created? What acts of beauty will come into being so as to give voice to their collective trauma, grief, and despair? I wonder, how will hope be expressed? How will peace and compassion be represented as the only viable option for society? In Henry Nouwen's book, The Wounded Healer, he gives a description of those who operate out of compassion, one who, quote, suffers with While Nouwen was speaking of ministers, I have paraphrased Nouwen's ideas to include writers and artists. Perhaps the main task of the writer and artist is to prevent people from suffering for the wrong reasons. No writer or artist can save anyone. They can only offer themselves as a guide to fearful people, where a shared pain is no longer paralyzing, but mobilizing when understood as a way of liberation, when we become aware that we do not have to escape our pains, but that we can mobilize them into a common search for life. Those very pains are transformed from expressions of despair into signs of hope. Why do we read books? To gain empathy, perspective, and and knowledge about people and places we might otherwise would not have known. We also read to find companionship of experience, where an author can help give voice to the confusing soup of thoughts, feelings, and experiences that percolates within us. Why do we reread books? Because our lives are not static. We often find ourselves to be a mess, and we need help and perspective. We need guides who will help illuminate the path and give some clarity to our lives and point us to a better way. Nouwen writes, Making one's own wounds a source of healing, therefore, does not call for a sharing of superficial personal pains, but for a constant willingness to see one's own pain and suffering as rising from the depth of the human condition which all men share. This has been Rereads, and my name is Kent Place. Join me next month for the final episode of this season's Rereads, a science fiction offering by C.S. Lewis called Paralandra. Until then, be well, and remember, you can never step into the same book twice.